welcome back to the horrors hi i'm elise i'm shay and here we are we have a doozy today i'm telling you we're gonna be here for a little while so buckle your seatbelts. grab a snack and a fucking beverage some tissue if you're of age yeah. or just a hydrating water yeah if you're under 21 20 fun I think this is the most timely, most serious, most heavy episode we've yet to record. We're not anticipating this being a ball of fun, especially after last week's Dream Warriors extravaganza. (laughs) Yes, very different movie. But we do think this is very important to talk about. And this week we are covering Mother. Exclamation point. Lowercase m. 2017, directed by Darren Aronofsky, starring Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence. Okay, and I do have some thoughts of mine that I just want to share before getting into our trivia and then eventually our plot and analysis. So this is the first recording we've done since Roe versus Wade was overturned. And the religious horror movie we're covering today, like Shay said, is stunningly relevant and timely. To begin on a note of personal interest, the themes we'll be discussing surrounding women, gender roles, motherhood, and religion are among my favorite topics of discussion, even with the darker mood enshrouding them in the wake of a decision rooted in religion that decimates all women's rights to their own bodies. The question I've been the most drawn to in my postgraduate studies is about religion, specifically how exactly Christianity influences American culture. And there is no doubt that Christianity influences that court decision. I am no expert on the Bible, just a former CCD student and ex-Catholic like Shay, (laughs) who used to fall asleep during Mass. But even so, I've spent a lot of time coping with my own personal demons, many of which I know stemmed directly from the religion I grew up with, including my own relationship with sex, my body, place, and society, and the feeling of betrayal when realizing the institution's duplicity in preaching love, yet historically being weaponized to marginalize countless groups of people and endanger countless children with a toxic culture of dominance and silence. And while we've never been a podcast that delves too much into our own personal lives, I felt compelled to share some of these thoughts since this is a feminist podcast created to focus on women and their roles in the horror genre, and the horror continues to exist in the real world. This movie was by far the most difficult to get through for this podcast for me, and probably ever. Okay, there was crying. Screaming, crying, throwing Scream, up. <laughs> screaming, crying, and yes, I did not throw up, but I thought <laughs> I was gonna. I have never experienced a viewing like it. But researching the movie has also been a little bit therapeutic, especially because of its place in the religious horror genre. It affirms that my feelings of deception by my childhood religion are not just mine. And why not depict some of the oppressive expectations of Christianity as the stuff of nightmares when it can feel like that in real life? When it is like that. This film illustrates that religion and horror are a match made in genre heaven, pun intended. And to be clear, I don't know anything, but I absolutely know my own experiences and that I absolutely did use researching this movie as a coping mechanism for being a woman these days and as an attempt to try and understand some of what the fuck is going on in the mixing of church and state via the microcosm of the film itself. Beautifully said. I have been having such a hard time putting my thoughts together just after Roe, but also with this movie. I think I told Elise my first visceral reaction was just feeling enraged and deeply discomforted by this movie. 
And I think it has a lot to do with what's going on outside of the world. You know, I think horror serves as a way for us to investigate and use it as almost like a cathartic space to work through what is happening in the real world as a means of escapism. But I feel like this movie trapped you for two hours Mm -hmm. in the reality of what could be to come or what once was and you couldn't get out of it even with the pausing and even with some of the points of levity like it was so deeply uncomfortable to watch so I would warn anybody if you haven't seen the movie and you would want to or if this discussion is already giving you like a pit in your stomach sit it out until it doesn't because I think we're going to be talking about a lot of uncomfortable themes regarding women's autonomy to their bodies motherhood but it is a beautifully shot movie and it's captivating but it's hard it's a hard one to get through but i think it's a very interesting companion piece for us to touch on the horror that is happening to women and folks who are birth givers and yeah let's just get the fuck into it because holy hell this shit's a nightmare let's fucking go all right so some trivia imdb we know it we love it So first, the mother poster is a replica of the Rosemary's Baby 1968 poster, which I think is interesting. You know, even before the movie was even released, already connections being drawn to a a different iconic religious horror film. Throughout the entire movie, no one's name is ever mentioned and not a single character is ever referred to by any name. Characters are listed in the end credits by their roles in the story. So that brings us to our main ladies Credited as mother, we have Jennifer Lawrence, Academy Award winner. Credited as woman, we have Michelle Pfeiffer. And the first movie I saw Michelle Pfeiffer in was Grease 2. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know what? If you want to watch something that is just a joy, watch Grease 2. (laughs) Then we have our main men. There are only two of these, so we're throwing them out there. Credited as him, capital H, we have Javier Bardem. And then credited as man, we have Ed Harris. Darren Aronofsky said the exclamation point in the title is a reference to the last 30 minutes of the film. So yeah, I think that tracks. That's correct. And just another sort of note here that I think gives a really good indication about the intensity of this movie. Jennifer Lawrence took a year off for making movies after working on this film, which she found very taxing. That's where we're at. So we open, as Alicia Keys once said, this girl is on fire. (laughs) We see Jennifer Lawrence entrenched in coals and- I don't think it's her. No, it's not. wait, you're right. It's not her. Because, okay, there's a mirroring scene which made me think it was her, but I didn't know if she was just burnt beyond recognition or what. Okay, you're right. It is a woman who is covered in fire and it's a very haunting shot of her being covered in like ash and coals and dust and then fire goes up. And we see a jewel being placed on a stand. And this is a hunk of a jewel. Like, this is the crystal you want on your little crystal pedestal to, like, bring you some kind of desired vibe, right? This is the crystal you want to be doing crystal meditations with. And once this jewel is placed on the stand, the house, which we assume has gone up in flames due to the first shot, begins to refurbish around it. So you start to see all this burned and black exoskeleton of this house begin to regenerate into white walls and hardwood floors. And the house, we don't really see an external shot of it until almost halfway through the movie, but it gives very much the notebook house. Mm. 
I don't know. Have you, I don't know if you've seen it in a have while. I seen the in a notebook. while? I mean, oh no, I have seen it within the last year. But oh like, yes, the I big do white revisit. house. So it's very large. It's circular. It's rustic farmhouse vibes. But the jewel is placed. The house is restored, and we see Jennifer Lawrence waking up, looking around, and saying, "Baby." She is searching for her mans. And as she searches through the house, she's not finding him in the kitchen, the living room. She looks outside. He's nowhere to be found. Next thing we know, him, Javier Bardem, appears behind her, gives her a little scare. They move on to a discussion about him needing alone time for ideas to flow. And that's what he was doing outside just then. But nothing came to him. He's still absolutely experiencing writer's block. Through this conversation, we learned that he is a writer and he is experiencing writer's block. Yeah, they are very affectionate toward each other. You can tell they have like a nice loving relationship. And Jennifer Lawrence says, don't worry about the ideas. They'll come, which Mm. they'll come, I think, is very prophetic of like what happens later on in the movie. Just the sentence they'll come. Right away, you can see that there is an age gap in this relationship. Jennifer Lawrence was 27 when she was in this movie, but she is played to be, I think, a little bit younger, like very early 20s, at least in my view. Yeah, maybe 24, 25. She's wearing a sheer white nightgown that you can see her body through. Mm -hmm. So you could tell that the camera wants you to see her body, her sexuality, and Javier Bardem looks like he could be in his late 40s, early 50s. And they supposedly have this house together. He is this writer. She is this housewife of sorts. Then we get a scene of mother plastering. And she is dressed up in her quote unquote work clothes. She's facing the blank wall. She puts some plaster down on the wall, but she doesn't seem too satisfied. She mixes in some kind of like yellowish greenish chartreuse-ish coloring. Charcuterie. (laughs) Charcuterie board coloring and uh, mixes it in. And the next time she does a test swipe on the wall, she does seem a little bit happier with this little suggestion of a color. While she's doing this, she puts her palm flat on the wall. How could I forget? And when she does this, the image dissolves from like the white plaster wall into the view of a beating heart. So you could tell that mother has some sort of relationship with like the heart of the house of sorts. And you see the heart, it seems to be pretty like pink, vibrant, red. I wouldn't say it's an unsettling image, but you could tell it's like, oh, okay, there's something here, but all seems to be like healthy. And she seems a little stunned by the image, but not discomforted. And then she has breakfast or lunch with him. In the kitchen, she finishes putting the meal together. She puts the food on the table. I guess he gives her a look sort of like, maybe you didn't have to, or I forget what he says, but she responds, I wanted to, you've been working so hard. Which immediately stood out to me because we just saw a scene with her doing her own hard work. So I thought that was an interesting line. So that night, Jennifer Lawrence, I kept writing J-Law. Me too. (laughs) That night, mother sits by the fire as him sits struggling to think of something to write. Then there is a knock at the door and he goes to answer. A random man is there. We hear their greeting sort of in muffled voices from mother's perspective. She hears her conversation, goes to see what's going on. Through the conversation she's overhearing, this man is an orthopedic surgeon at the local hospital. She's still not quite sure what he's doing there. She offers refreshment as the hostess with the mostess does. He declines, but she goes to make some tea anyway. In the background, she hears the man say, your wife? I thought she was your daughter. 
again, adding to this age dynamic. And this isn't the first or last instance of their age gap being pointed out by outsiders. But when she is in the kitchen, she seems apprehensive because him is very welcoming. Him is like, oh, you have to come in. You have to sit. And mother isn't really understanding. But while she's making tea, the sound begins to distort. She has this laborious breathing to the point where she's so distracted, she drops a mug. And she's holding her chest or her stomach area. She's kind of like bent over. You could tell that it's almost presenting as like a contraction or labor pain or some sort of anxiety. But she seems to be overwhelmed. But it passes And she goes back into the room to see the man and him drinking whiskey together. And this is where we find out that the man thought they were a bed and breakfast. Yeah, random. And him's response to that was like, oh, let's just let him stay. Yes, which red flags, right? She is very clearly by her facial expressions not keen on the idea of this random man staying in her house. She says, we don't know him. And then him responds, he's a doctor. As if that's like he must be safe. You could tell that once he is invited, he gets really comfortable because he just like lights a cigarette inside. And then mother protests being like, we don't smoke in the house. And then he kind of gives her like a, oh, you old hag or whatever. And then just flicks the cigarette onto the porch, like not even like puts it out politely, like just flicks it onto their porch. So you could tell that this man is getting very comfortable very quickly. And so begins this so uncomfortable energy that I think Aronofsky does very well sewing is just like, you could tell something's wrong, but you don't feel as though you're in a place to point it out. And it just gets worse and worse and worse over time. So mother eventually concedes to letting the man stay in the house. And she goes to the basement to get some fresh linens, which <laughs> stupid note. I was like, no closet, no linen closet in that huge ass. Fucking <laughs> house. Why are you keeping your shit in the basement? And again, senses a presence of sort in the darkness. Nothing really comes of it at this time. She leaves and continues setting up for the man as him and the man socialize some more. Meanwhile, the man has learned him's profession as a writer. And it turns out that this man has read him's stuff. (laughs) So he then asks about the crystal that he had seen in the study area that he's in when he finds out about him's profession, learns it was a gift. The man asks from your wife. He says, no, but it symbolizes him starting over after losing everything in a fire when he was younger. Yes, he said that he lost everything in a fire, that this jewel was the one thing that was found in the ashes, and that because of mother, mother rebuilt the entire house, like, wall by wall, frame by frame. Man is like, oh, you're more than just a pretty face then. So again, like, undermining her role as his partner, as his lover. And man seems very, like, insistent on touching it. He wants to hold it. He's like, can I just? And him is doing a good job of deflecting and hiding the jewel from his grip. You could tell that it's very special to him. He puts it back on his stand and leads the man out of the room. Then the man begins coughing violently as mother retreats to go to bed. In the middle of the night, mother wakes again. There are some noises. She goes downstairs to check on what is going on. And she finds her husband helping the naked man now with a strange wound. She catches a glimpse of some sort of cut or gash on the man's ribs. He is coughing fiercely into the toilet. It sounds like he might be getting sick. She turns to leave. You know, him sees her kind of shields the man from view a little bit. As she looks in, she gets the sense, maybe this isn't my place and goes to leave. 
But then the noises start to become distorted again. The pain and shortness of breath that she was experiencing earlier in the movie in the kitchen returns. And we can see out of her view, but in a different camera shot, a corner of the baseboards in the house start to blacken as if perhaps rotting a little bit. Mother goes upstairs and takes a yellow tonic of sorts that seems to reinstate some sense of peace. And also in this scene, part of the reason that mother leaves is because she is shooed away from him. Because oh, she, she wants, yeah, she wants to help. Or then him is like, give him some privacy. Like, I'll help him. Just go back to bed. And then she also turns to the bedside table and sees that the man had been smoking inside despite mm. her protests. And she knocks his lighter behind the bedpost mm. so that he might not be able to continue to smoke in her house. And that's when the baseboards begin to blacken. So you kind of begin to see that there is a pattern between the relationship between him and mother and how the house is. So that relationship will continue to form throughout the rest of the film. But yeah, she drinks this little like tonic or whatever and then goes back to bed and then awakes the next morning cooking breakfast. She is doing her thing when him comes in. She asks what happened the night before, but he is definitely evading her questions. Instead, he starts talking about how great the man's company is. Quote, it is so inspiring speaking to someone who really appreciates the work. Immediately, mother takes offense to this. She responds, I love your work. Him responds, quote, of course you do. I know that. So this is kind of the second or third time we're getting a sense that maybe there's a little bit of a communication barrier, like there's some kind of distance between these two. It seems like mother is feeling underappreciated or undervalued or maybe unnoticed by him, despite what she is contributing to this household, both off screen, what she has already done in the house and on screen, what we've already seen her start doing in the house without question, jumping into this hostess role for her husband's guests. Both him and man deflect any questions of the illness, kind of like gaslighting her and making it seem like, oh yeah, I was fine. What do you mean? I'm cool. So then there's a knock at the door and woman arrives, who is the man's wife. And then he says, there you are, as if he had invited her or that she was expected. So this is obviously confusing to mother, but him seems to be in the know, which again, makes it all the more concerning. They kiss passionately, which is very uncomfortable for mother to watch. And I took note of this. So as woman is invited in, that's when the fire alarm goes off. Like oh, as she damn. as she crosses the threshold, mm-hmm. the fire alarm starts going off because she has food burning on the cast iron. And both mother and woman burn their hands trying to get the cast iron off of the flame. But eventually all is taken care of. And then the four of them are having breakfast together. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so now that the four are sitting together, mother hears how the man and woman met and fell in love. They never had any doubts about the other. And the woman comments that mother and him must feel the same since, quote, they're so different, sort of implying that their chemistry must be so great despite being so different. And that's what keeps them together, which is super fucking passive. Then the chat turns to the couple's children. Mother mentions that she wants to finish the house before they have kids and him is working. And when the couple reacts like they're imposing, finally, the man and woman get the sense, oh, mother is working or there's stuff going on here. Maybe we should leave. Him offers for them to stay without asking mother. And she catches this immediately. She confronts him when the couple leaves the room. 
but backs down again when he kind of says the same thing, like, they need help, they have nowhere to go, he likes my work. So we're back in the same situation. And this is the first time we see him kind of treat her coldly. She almost tries to emulate the affection that man and woman have been showing each other the entire Mm. time. And he kind of rebuffs her. He's like, I really need to go work now because I have new people. They're giving me ideas. Like, it's inspirational. Like, I'm going to go do that. So again, you can kind of tell she's feeling casted to the side. Next scene, we see her plastering again. Woman brings in some lemonade, acting overly comfortable. She's asking mother for (laughs) painkillers and just like lounging on her couch, like feet up, all that kind of stuff. So again, acting like she owns the place and she begins asking mother, why didn't you just build a new house when like the fire happened or whatever? And mother's like, well, it's his home. So you could tell that she's really taken all of this effort into really like building this amazing space for him. They begin having a conversation as they're walking through the house. Mother's kind of giving woman a tour at her asking. And woman is urging her to have kids as they walk through the rooms. I made a note that in the beginning scene, when we see mother looking for him right after she wakes up for the first time, the camera is almost sitting in a neutral space of the house and mother is walking through the doorways from room to room and we only see her passing through the open doors. And then now woman is following the same path that she did. So it's almost like she's taking her lay of the land or she's following mother's footsteps in the house, like following the way that she navigates the house in a much more comfortable way. So it's almost like woman laying stake or woman feeling comfortable enough. I mean, it's almost like that joke we made last week about how in the 80s, it's just like, oh, like you just let strangers walk about your house. But it's like the same thing where- (laughs) But this this isn't the 80s. This isn't the 80s. It's 2017. (laughs) But it's almost like that joke that you see on like TikTok sometimes of what your mom thinks is going to happen when you have a family party, where it's like somebody walks in and then rushes to like the guest bedroom. It's just like, oh, you didn't fill the toilet paper in the guest bathroom, (laughs) piece of shit. You know what I mean? It's like, that's how it feels. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. That is so perfect. And meanwhile, I don't know if this was mentioned, but one woman is drinking spiked lemonades, very much making herself at home. So love that for her. Woman also is commenting on mother's age a lot. Yes. She's saying a lot of things like, again, urging her to have kids being like, you're not going to be young forever. Mother's like, oh, you know, we're just not doing that right now. And she's like, oh, I mean, like, I understand there's a full generation between you. And mother's like, he's not that old. Like, again, (laughs) like, there's just like this conversation of, okay, like, wow, you must really love him. Or wow, you really do love him. Woman is infuriating. She is pretty annoying. There's also a moment where she starts catching on based on mother's tone as she answers the questions about wanting kids, not wanting kids, where she realizes that mother does want kids. And she says, is it him? Woman really wants this to be like a hot gossip sesh, but mother is very private, and rightfully so. Woman can ask questions. She can be like, too much. Also, at some point during this conversation, back in the bit where mother says, this is his home, she also says, we spend so much time here, I want to make a paradise, mm-hmm. which is a quote that will come up again later in a lot of different ways. So I wanted to make note of that. So on the tour, woman sees him's office upstairs and asks to see. Mother hesitates, but too long, does she think? Because woman has already walked her ass right (laughs) in that office. Mother demands that woman stay out of there after she tries to enter anyway. Woman responds, quote, wow, you really do love him. I feel like this is like, are we 14? Even though, like, Michelle Pfeiffer's character and the man's character are very, like, mature, like, they are parents, they talked about having grown children, 
the way that they act with each other and the way that woman talks, because I think we hear woman talk a little bit more than we do with the man. Usually when the man is having a conversation, it's with him out of mother's space. Mm-hmm. Like they usually separate themselves as men having a man conversation. I don't know. Something about like these questions, these observations from women just feel so like young or immature. Just then, the two men announce that they're going on a hike, more man time, and the woman declines the invitation to go, and she says because they have laundry to do, meaning her and mother, which, okay. You just got here. (laughs) Why do you need to change your clothes already? So into the basement they go, woman drops the bag, and mother almost mechanically, hearing something hit the floor, goes to pick it up, I noted. Sometimes mother goes through these actions, you know, making food, cleaning things up, picking things up, almost mechanically. She's not reacting. She's just doing. A conversation about mother and him's sex life begins. And the reason for that is woman has found mother's tidy whities in the laundry pile. Yeah, granny panties. Granny panty tidy whities, which look very comfortable, okay? (laughs) (laughs) A woman remarks that if him isn't into mother, it's either because he's too old or... And then never finishes that statement. Mother, for once, tries to urge her to finish whatever the F she was going to say, but she doesn't. Eventually, she goes upstairs to freshen up the lemonades, and Mother chucks the underwear. Well, she doesn't chuck her underwear. She chucks woman's green lacy panties. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, it was. Because when woman is, like, emptying the washer, she's putting their laundry, like, mother and him's laundry, just, like, on the cement floor. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, what you do in college when someone's left their shit too long, yeah. how you, like, put it on the floor, like, <laughs> on top of the thing. So it's very inconsiderate. And then she starts throwing her own shit in there. But then once she sees evocative green thongs, like Mm. she drops the thong behind the washing machine, just like she did with man's lighter, like almost like, I don't want you behaving this way in my house. So I'm going to do this little petty thing so that you can't do this anymore, (laughs) which I thought was a little funny. I love that. Mother goes upstairs, see that woman has left a mess in the kitchen, goes looking for her and goes into the guest bathroom and finds bloody tissues in a running sink. So it looks like, I don't know, like she got like a nosebleed or something. We don't really ever find out. So she goes to flush the bloody tissues and the toilet is clogged by what the fuck was this shit? My first instinct, just because of the previous scene with the heart in the wall, was that it was a heart. But I don't think that's what it is. Mm-mm. It seems like there's too many almost tendrils. Yeah. Some kind of red organism that looks perhaps like an organ that would be in a human body. I was like, crab? Tampon? Pad? What the <laughs> fuck is this? Because whatever no. it is, like you see it kind of coming out from like the back of the toilet bowl. It shakes its little tendrils and then it spews blood and then flushes down the toilet. So it's yeah. like, what? Well, the night before is when him and man were in the bathroom. So I was thinking like the bloody mess was kind of left over from the night before him didn't clean it up all the way or left the water running. Who knows? That's been running for hours now. Or the thing in the toilet was maybe something that the man coughed up when he was throwing Mm up. That doesn't really help me no. with any ideas as we don't to know. what it is, but it is a thing. It is a thing. And she seems equally confused as to what it is. So I guess that makes me feel better. <laughs> right. We never really find out. <laughs> yeah. So up for interpretation. But as she's leaving the bathroom, she sees man's open duffel bag and something sticking out of it. So she investigates and it is a picture of him 
inside the man's duffel bag. So again, this is proving that man knew who him was before he stopped at their house. Mother puts the thing back and I think then goes looking for woman again and finds woman in him's study looking at the jewel about to touch it and mother has to be very forceful to shoo her out of that space. And as they're arguing about it, that's when man and him return from their hike. And shortly after man and him return, mother gets him alone for a second and she tells him about the picture of him in the man's luggage. And him tells mother that, yes, the man is indeed a fan, that he does know who him is, and that his dying wish was to meet him. Because he is sick. He is dying. Just then, a crash is heard from upstairs, and man and woman have broken him's gorgeous crystal. Very intense. Very uncomfortable. Him goes to clean it up as man and woman scatter downstairs sort of away. Mother takes on a very demanding role and is trying to shun them out almost down the stairs away from the scene of the crime. As him starts to clean up the mess, he squeezes the shattered pieces in his hands and bleeds into the pile of glass. This is the first time we ever see him aggressive because he does shoo them out of the room with a gesture, but then yells quiet. Like he's very aggressive, very forceful. You could tell like this was the one thing you could have done to piss him off and perhaps get them out of here. Mother, man, and woman are downstairs. And again, woman feels very passive. It's just like, we apologize. What else would you like us to do? And it's like, bitch, (laughs) bitch. Wow. Yes. So she does leave him in his office alone to kind of cope with the loss of this crystal. And as she walks through the house, is she looking to like expel them out of the house? They go back to their room and shut the door and she's like, uh, what the fuck? So she goes to like, try to get them to get out of there. And then the floor begins to grow black. Well, and I think that happens because mother then alone tries to go comfort him and him shoes her away too. Right. So again, like feeling rejected by him. And this is when she sees woman and man about to bone too. She's also dressed in lingerie, like very like black and green lacy shit. So then mother like closes the door like, uh, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, not what she wanted to see. The noises begin again. The pain begins again. Like you said, more of the floor blackens beneath her and she retrieves more yellow tonic. Him exits his study or his office and then knocks off the door handle. In his anger, Mm -hmm. I would say he, he slams the door so hard that the handle comes off. I made note of it because he closes the door and then you can almost tell that like mother wants to go and like clean up and he then brings <gasps> his hand down oh, to like shit. take the door handle off almost as to stop her. Like even I don't oh, want you in here okay, anymore. Okay. And then he goes down to the basement or whatever and gets like boards and begins boarding up to study. And mother's like, uh, can you just like tell these people to leave and then we can handle this? And, yes. and then he's like, well, where will they go? And it's like, <laughs> where were they before? I don't know. <laughs> Then the brothers enter. Yes. The two sons arrive, who are brothers in real life. If I forget their names, but that is a piece of trivia I read. And right away, they come in the house fighting. They are arguing. Again, very uncomfortable for two strangers coming into a new space and just automatically feeling comfortable enough to totally argue and ignore mother and him who live there. They even ask mother, who are you? Yeah. like, And she's like, who are you? 
they are fighting. It seems like it's getting out of control. Finally, him appears again, this time kind of like from the attic, almost. It seems like the camera pans up past that balcony staircase where all bad things happen. No, I'm just, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, like past that entrance to his office off the balcony. We've seen it now to, again, the highest entrance that looks like it would be to like an attic or something. He emerges from that room. We never see that room again. He goes downstairs and tries to mediate the situation between the two men but only for so long. And they're fighting about their father's will. Yes. So they're talking about how, dad, you're dying and you're leaving the older brother everything and you're leaving the youngest brother nothing. So mm-hmm. you can tell that there's a lot of contention between the brothers because the youngest brother obviously feels like he's being shafted by this deal and the older brother is coming there to defend the father's decision. And that is the source of the fighting. Things are being broken and smashed. And ultimately, the younger brother is killed by the older brother with the doorknob. Mother had been thrown against the wall at some point and is like laying there like, oh my God, what the fuck? Brother approaches her and is like, they never loved me. They were leaving me behind. Tell me you understand. Tell me you understand. And it's grabbing her face, being very violent. And she says she understands. And then the brother runs away, runs out of the house And then that is when him and woman enter and find brother bleeding out on the ground. And then him again starts ordering mother around and she obliges like, go get towels, go do this, go do that. Like your wife was just thrown against the fucking wall, whatever. Anyway. To add to that frustration, him quickly has woman and man join him and go to the hospital, leaving mother behind all alone, where we know that the man who has just killed his brother is still kind of running around on the property. We don't know where he's going to go, if he's going to come back. And mother, of course, is left with such a mess to deal with alone. She begs him, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me here alone. And all he can say is, they need me and mother is left alone. And this is the first external shot we get of the house, Mm. which I found is interesting because we don't see mother ever leave the house, which is very important. We see him is able to leave the house, but mother has never crossed the threshold of the front porch. So it's very interesting thinking about what we find out later and all that kind of stuff. But it's surrounded by a lot of tall grass, very isolated. It's a round white house and like no one else for miles. So again, that kind of leads to this you thought this was a bed and breakfast, maybe, maybe not. What the? Ha- I mean, it looks like a cool-ass Airbnb. Like, it could be a cool-ass Airbnb, but <laughs> they don't got neighbors. They don't got zoning laws. They're just out there by themselves. Yeah, if you like to live around people, this is not for you. Nope. Mother commences cleaning up the blood. And I don't think he's killed in him's office space upstairs. It's downstairs, right? It's in mm-hmm. the, the room, the guest room of sorts it's that like she had. like off the kitchen somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a spot on the floor that just won't clean up. You know, she's scrubbing, the wood is holding on to the blood. She empties the old water, fills it again, and again imagines a beating heart in the house as she lays her head on the bathroom wall waiting for the bucket to fill. When she comes to again, reanimating to go investigate the floor again, she easily peels away rotted wood from this spot on the floor and sees blood dripping into the basement below. The house is wounded as a person would be wounded. Downstairs, she investigates, and when she turns on one of the lights, the bulb fills with blood and bursts, spattering blood all over the wall. And as that blood runs down, it outlines another hole. Yeah, like a covered up corridor entrance. She opens it up because she's not afraid of shit. But does she get? She doesn't really get to see much at this point, right? She knocks the wall down or opens the door to like look around, but she doesn't spend a lot of time there now. Yeah, because. She hears glass break just above her. 
Again, she goes to investigate and realizes that the back door is open. The picture of her husband that she had found earlier in the man's luggage is burned and discarded on the floor. The son has returned and he says, they left you all alone. You do understand. Good luck and leaves. If you're confused. So are we. Yes. (laughs) But don't worry, stick with us. Because if you haven't caught on yet, you fucking will. Because we're going to just tell you. (laughs) It's also worth noting that I just kept calling them the blood holes because I didn't know what else to fucking call them. (laughs) Very vaginal in shape and nature. Yeah, true. Because they're just like leading to these new passageways, these new canals of the house, these unexplored areas. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking at the house as this like extension of mother, Mm -hmm. like it does seem like that would make sense. Like, is this relating to her motherhood, her foreshadowed motherhood? like a wound? Like, is this signifying like a more serious permanent wound that perhaps she herself has on her heart, her mind? Like, you know, what is she feeling for what's just happened? She's been completely neglected. So as son leaves, him arrives and comforts mother because she's freaked out. Obviously, she tried calling 911 and then him arrived. He tells her that brother is dead, that he held his hand while he died And he's like, I need a shower. Will you come with me? But before mother goes up to do that, she covers the hole in the floor with a carpet to kind of like hide it. And then when she goes upstairs, him is asleep. But mother then awakes later in the night to noises downstairs with people just walking down in her corridor. People. Just people. She learns that the man and woman have returned with family and friends for their son's wake. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the fucking night. Mother sees the woman first and gives her condolences. She tries to say, I'm so sorry. But the woman rolls her eyes and walks away. She is definitely giving mother the cold shoulder. And him wakes and mother's like, bro, what the fuck? And he said, they have nowhere to go. I told him it was okay to invite friends and family. And it's like, I, oh man, if you were already uncomfortable, just like, it's going to get a lot more. It's going to get, it's going to get worse. So like tenfold. So then they go down and there's like, people are dressed for a funeral. Like they're dressed in suits and ties. Again, it's like, what time is it? (laughs) Um, But him gives like a sermon of sorts where he talks about how his body might be gone, but you can hear his voice. More people arrive and they either walk past mother with no regard or they greet her like they're friends, like kissing her on the mouth and doing all this. And it's just like, what the fuck? Man asks mother to say something about the son dying. And it's like, I didn't know him. Like, what are you, what's going on? More confusion. So mother does what I do when I'm uncomfortable at a party and just passively starts cleaning. <laughs> just, it's like, I don't want to talk to anybody. So I'm going to go refill these chips and I'm going to go yeah. do this. But she's being treated like the guest in her own home. There are people sitting on her unsecured sink mm-hmm. and she has to ask them repeatedly to get off. Woman comes back at her again. Mother's trying to give her condolences and woman's like, you can't understand because you don't have a child and she's smoking inside. Again, like (sighs) boundaries. They Mm -hmm. don't exist in this movie. Mm -mm. Then she says to mother, can't you at least go and put something decent on? And it's just like, you woke me up in the middle of the night with a wink in my house. What are you doing? Mother didn't realize she was still in her PJs, her very sheer PJs. So she, embarrassed, goes upstairs and she finds that people are trying to get down in her room. She kicks them out, and then the feeling starts again. The distorted sounds, the shortness of breath, the pain. She takes the tonic and returns downstairs. Then she finds people painting her fucking house. I think the same man that she just kicked out of her bedroom, he's downstairs painting now. And he tells mother, quote, he's been so kind to us, it's the least we could do. What? (laughs) 
And then that's where we get a scene of her going back into the kitchen. And there's this couple who every time she asks them to get off the sink, they go and sit back on it. And they keep doing this. And then intercut with this happening, there is a man very aggressively trying to hit on her, asking her to go on a walk, trying to like get down with her. And she's like, I don't want to do anything with you. I'm not interested. Calls her like a tired cunt or something like that. And then the couple eventually breaks the sink and water starts spurting everywhere. And then this is what gets Mother to have a little bit of backbone. It's like, get out, get out, all of you. She begins screaming, going from room to room. And then people start shuffling their way out. Yeah. They fucking scatter. I know biblically, like, what this scene's supposed to represent. You'll touch on it. Let's do it. Let's do a little moment. Okay, we're going to do a little bit of a, of a friends, check-in. this is the end of the First Testament. Oh, fuck. <laughs> okay, so here's a little bit of post-plot information from a Collider article by Matt Goldberg. Quote, Mother is an allegory about God and the earth. Javier Bardem's character him, is God. And Jennifer Lawrence's character is Mother Earth with the house standing in for the environment. From there, the story attempts to be a biblical allegory of both the Old and New Testament, as well as a brief, deeply misanthropic view of human history. Ed Harris's man represents Adam. When he's puking in the bathroom, we quickly see an injury right where his rib would be. In the next scene, his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, representing Eve, shows up. They're allowed to wander the house, but are told specifically not to go to the poet's office, but they do so anyway, where Eve accidentally breaks the fire crystal. They're then exiled and soon begin having sex elsewhere in the house, thus representing original sin and man's fall from grace after eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. And just a quick other bit of biblical knowledge. According to the Bible, Eve was created when God took one of Adam's ribs and then woman was created from man. So right after we see that scene is when, quote unquote, Eve arrives, kind of mimicking that part of the Old Testament. Then the couple's sons, oh, here we go, Brian and Donald Gleason, come along arguing about their dying father's will. In their argument, one brother kills the other. Cain and Abel, baby. Their parents and the poet carry the dead brother out of the house and the surviving brother runs away. The poet and the parents then return later that night for a wake and more and more guests come to grieve. But the wake then becomes a chaotic party where, after numerous protestations to not sit on an unbraced sink, the sink becomes unmoored from the wall and water pours into the house. Thus, we have humanity's downfall following the slaying of Abel and eventually the flood. The flood being like, Noah's Ark, build a big boat, that two by story. Two. Yeah. yeah. So what happens next is going to mark the start of the New Testament. Next, mother goes to shut off the water and then she comes back upstairs and the house is empty. Him enters, tells them that they're gone, but then says, you know, we did a good thing. They really needed that. Oh my God. And mother is sick of him's shit. She's like, what about what I need? A boy died tonight. I mopped up his blood and you abandoned me. Mm-hmm. And him's like, no, 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 I didn't. And then they have this fight about how mother has spent all of this time rebuilding this house for him where him hasn't written a single word. <laughs> so calling him out on his bullshit and him then opens the door and is like, I'm trying to open the door to my mind for new people, new ideas so that I can write. And this house is suffocating. Oh, God, this is some, like, real shit. And then they're fighting, they're fighting. And Mother says, and then you talk about wanting kids, but you can't even fuck me. Oh, whoop. And I whoop. 
Cue wild sex scene, which I have mixed feelings about. Yeah, because it really starts as a tussle, like him pinning her against the wall and kissing her forcefully when she's saying no, but then... It turns into very passionate lovemaking, and I'm like, Yes, it does. It rides that line. And I think it is meant to ride that line. Because Mother still loves him, and it seems like she wants to have a family with him. She wants him to listen to her. Like, she still seems invested in this relationship. And at first, she's so fucking pissed, but then I could see it making sense for her to want this physicality with him. But again, because of that forcefulness of the way that it starts, it begs the question, you know, like, we don't hear her consent. Is she just going along with it? Is she tired of arguing? Is she looking to pacify, pacify instead of kind of continuing to stay in this more angry, aggressive space? Because we've seen her back down from that a lot of times already in this movie where she kind of says something or stands up and then is quickly pacified. It's also very interesting to see what are the things that have captured him's attention. Mm. Like, what are the things that get him's attention? It's people breaking into his house. It's people having fistfights in his fucking corridor. She's seeing that level of destruction and drama are the things that are, like, drawing him to situations. It's where he's needed. It's where he can help and, like, do all those things. So maybe in her mind, she's been so passive up until this point where if she denies him and she's mean to him and if she has this explosive anger, like, it will draw him to her. And that's what happens. That is such a good point. It's toxic. If we're talking outside of this whole, like, him as God allegory just them as a couple Mm -hmm. allegory. Like it makes a lot of sense that way as she has been so passive up until this point. And it is not until she's hysterical, quote unquote, that him concedes to anything that she wants ever throughout the entire movie. So the next day, it seems mother wakes up and in a very divine moment announces that she is pregnant. She just has a sense. She turns over, tells him who is laying next to her, and he is so happy. And then it lasts a second, and he gets the urge to write again. And he gets up and leaves her. And out of him's earshot, she says, quote, I'll just get started on the apocalypse. And we see her dump her tonic down the drain. Also during this scene, him says, that's the most beautiful gift, which I thought was very interesting because he called the crystal the most beautiful gift Ah. beforehand. And what we come to find out later, because that crystal is not from mother, mother feels a sense of insecurity about Mm. that. So now it's like, oh, wow, I'm giving him something that someone else couldn't give him. This is important. And then him also says, I love you to mother for the first time Mm. while he's writing feverishly. And that's when she dumps the tonic down the toilet. So she's almost feeling like there's this thing that's helping her cope or helping her make it between these not loving interactions with him or these moments where she feels hurt by him. And now it's like, oh, he said he loves me. He says I'm giving him the most beautiful gift. This is how I matter to him. So the lady said it. Mother is pregnant. She knew it. She said it. Time elapses. And the next scene we see, it sort of like fades into like this brilliant white light that fills the screen, then fades out. And that's how we see the time has elapses. Mother is in the nursery and it's ready. We can see it's in the room that the one son was killed in. But as mother moves the rug, we can see that she has replaced the boards and she's covering it up with a rug. She feels the baby move. And when she goes to tell him, he reveals that he has finally finished his book or whatever writing that he has been doing. 
Yeah, so he's standing on the front porch holding his manuscript, and I wrote looking for others, like he's looking for, like, admirers already, which is interesting. So he asks her to read it, and then we get this dissolve of a scene of him and Mother holding hands. Mother is on fire and, like, burnt and charred, and as she holds his hand, the burnt house in front of them replenishes. So we don't know what the story is, but that's the visual that we're getting. Mm -hmm. Mother begins to cry, says, it's beautiful, it's perfect. Am I going to lose you? And then he's like, never. So it's like, okay, why do you think that this poem being as great as it is means that, you know, you're not going to have your partnership anymore? Very interesting. The phone rings. It's his publisher. He says, they loved it. And Mother's like, oh, you sent it to your publisher to read already? And he's like, yeah, of course I did. And you could tell Mother's hurt by this because she wasn't the first person to read it as his partner. She goes to the nursery. The blood spot is back in the floorboards. (sighs) Next scene, mother is going through her nightly routine. She gets a comb from a bag in the bathroom, which is showing like she's so far along in her pregnancy that she already has her bag packed, like ready to go to the hospital when she needs to. She later then prepares a very special dinner where she is all dolled up. She is talking to him. He has come in, quote, one day, every copy sold. She is so pregnant and doing the most like she has made all of these meals. Again, she's wearing a gorgeous dress. She has her hair done, her makeup done. And she looks like she's about to pop. Again, her bag is packed. Like she could go into labor at any moment. So she's having this dinner to celebrate the publication, the sold copies. Things are going so well for him. Suddenly, a bunch of fucking people are in the house asking or at the house asking for him's autograph. Inside, the floorboards bleed more. And outside, the yard is now full of people. He leaves her inside. She finds some folks have made it inside. And soon enough, she can't even like, there's nothing she can do to stop more people from entering. Next thing you know, Kristen fucking wig is there (laughs) as him's publisher. And she's a mouth kisser. She gives mother a big smack and kiss and moves on about her business. The people in the house, like they're using the bathroom, they're lying on the ground, they're making themselves at home. A man says, the poet says, it's everyone's house. They're eating the meal that she made for him. And, you know, she goes to him and is like, what the fuck? Like, I'm about to have your baby. Why is that not enough for you? I want to be alone with you. Mm. And he's just so wrapped up in like his admirers is being put in a chair signing autographs. The publicist is being snarky. Kristen Wiig is saying like, oh, I was really worried about him being stuck here with you for this long, but like, (laughs) you're the inspiration. Like, you made a beautiful thing and look at you, you're about to pop. So again, like so passive aggressive, like Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. We are in the last 25, 30 minutes of the film. This is the exclamation point that Mm -hmm. we are starting to lay down for you. And things do get out of control. Him goes from signing autographs to next thing you know he is blessing people with what seems to be like ink like pen ink ink. or like ash like a priest would to folks on ash wednesday and you know what i noticed what the pattern in which he's doing it on their foreheads mimics the plaster from the first scene like (gasps) the design yeah Because it's not just like in the middle of the forehead, it's two over the eyebrows on Uh either side of the forehead. And it's the same like upward swipe pattern as the plaster that mother applied in that first scene. Okay. So after she sees her husband blessing people, like some kind of now, I think- Cult leader. Yes. She looks out the window and sees throngs of people coming. 
As she braces herself on the window frame, taking in what she sees, she imagines the beating heart again, and this time the heart is not looking as strong. She grabs her packed bag and tries to leave, but there is so much chaos downstairs that she can't get out. She keeps being thrown around. Everyone is completely destroying everything. It is absolute madness in there. Him appears and tries to make her stay, and in all of the chaos, she starts going into labor. She's asking, why are you people doing this? And somebody says, proof we were here. So again, these people thinking that they're part of some like religious event. And I noted that there are people both tearing the place apart and looting it and people painting yes, in the so same strange. room. So it's like weird about how it's almost like OG followers versus like new mm. fans. And it's just like who is closer to the chest. The police show up and <laughs> him and mother are pepper sprayed. Mother is whimpering and wandering as gunshots are ringing out. She's being trampled. She finds women locked in a cage. It's mm. like, so the geography of this house begins to get crazy. It begins yes. to get very fucking like other side of the hallway in Hellraiser with the Cenobites and yes. the heart. Like, it's just like, what is the geography of this? When has this fire broken out? Where are these cages come from? It starts getting very fantastical very quickly. I wrote, the world has arrived. This is a whole universe in this house everything happening at once. The SWAT team is also here, right? We are leveling up and Kristen Wiig is killing people execution style. Okay. And then there's an explosion that kills Kristen Wiig. And I do have a little bit of plot trivia on that. (laughs) So about the Kristen Wiig cameo, Aronofsky said, quote, I think it works with the whole weird dream vibe of this movie that suddenly this familiar face shows up. I don't want to say that Kristen shows up in a nightmare, but it's very strange and odd. You're not expecting it, and it kind of throws audiences. I think it's just another way of people going, what's she doing? And seeing her character take all these surprise turns you would never expect of her. It was fun and about giving audiences a little gift in the middle of the film. Yeah, because Kristen Wiig goes from like this passive-aggressive publicist to like, oh, it's the inspiration finish her and yeah like, what the fuck Kristen like Wiig? she was there any other comedic relief in this movie besides Kristen wig i don't think so i that might have been the only thing that kept me from spontaneously combusting by the time this film was over just that little bit of relief explosion happens mother and him find their way back to each other mother begging him like get me out of this house like get me out but then him is taking her deeper into the house saying like it's not safe it's not safe we need to go this way They come across a group of people. They're like, oh my God, it's the poet. He hasn't forsaken us. We need money. We need to eat. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't. So again, it's gone from like fucking Annie Wilkes and misery level obsession to like, you are the new Messiah. Mm. It's very quickly like you are God. And this is crazy. So they climb the stairs. They're fighting people off. Like him is now full on like punching people and throwing bows. It's like getting really crazy. Him breaks into the now boarded up office or study him barricades the door mother gives birth we get that white light again and then the dialogue of it's a boy and after him almost announces that all of the noise in the house stops like everything gets really quiet him goes and tries to open the door to mother's protest but then comes back with baskets of gifts fruit food water changes of clothes and this begins to have like him turn the tide again because first he was horrified and he's throwing bows and punching people and now he's like look they're giving us gifts like isn't this nice they're just waiting Mm -hmm. and they have this conversation of 
you know, mother's like, please make them go. And him feels disappointed, but walks outside to maybe do that, but then comes back with more gifts. And mother's like, well, are they leaving? And him's like, well, they just want to see him. He finally admits that he doesn't want all the people to go. She does not let him hold the baby. He gives her some of the clean clothes that the people left as gifts, and she changes with the baby still in hand. So she's not letting the baby go. We see that daylight has come, and then we see nighttime has come again. So this is like a stalemate now that's been going on. We see mother and baby drift to sleep together. Despite mother's best efforts to stay awake, she succumbs to her exhaustion. Fuck y'all. And this then is where it gets hard. I, yeah. And then this is where I just wrote the worst scene ever. Do you want to say it? Yeah. I think you're stronger than me. <laughs> <laughs> mother falls asleep and she wakes to see him presenting the baby to the crowd. Very Simba. Then we see that him has passed the baby to the crowd and the baby is almost crowd surfing. He doesn't even seem to have actively passed the baby. She runs up to get him. And when he turns around, he's still holding out his hands with nothing in it as if he doesn't even know where the baby went. Like he has no control over anything. Mother is running in the crowd after the baby who is being passed from hand to hand to hand. And you hear a bone break and you can assume that the baby's neck has been broken. Then it almost turns into very midsummery where she starts weeping and then the crowd starts weeping with her, like yes. that very like call and return. She fights her way to the front where there's this altar and won't go into detail, but now everybody in the crowd is consuming the baby. You don't see anything, but you see that the crowd is consuming bloody pieces of something and we can assume that this is their son. The body and blood of Christ. Yeah. Obviously, Mother's like, what the fuck? And there's like this man who was one of the first admirers that has now almost been like promoted to high priestess. Like the time and space of this movie is like so weird because it would make sense if that guy was man, right? Like was one of the first guys, but it's not. It's this other dude who was one of the first people on the porch. And you could tell he's in almost priest regalia Mm -hmm. at this point. And he's like, he's not dead. A voice still cries out to be heard loud and strong. And that quote is from the sermon when the son died. So they're using his teachings. Oh my God, it's just so disturbing. So next she finds a shard of glass on the ground and starts stabbing at people wildly. And they're kind of letting it happen because they're sobbing. They're kind of doing this very midsummer call and release. And she starts, you know, stabbing everybody. But then the crowd descends and begin assaulting her. Again, it's almost think of the idea of she was the inspiration, she served this purpose, but now that the work is here, now that the son was born, it doesn't matter how important she is to him anymore. Like, she Mm -hmm. is this dissenting, she is going against his word, his sermon. So the crowd descends, they're ripping her clothes off, they're calling her bitch, slut, dirty whore, fat pig. Literally, like, all of the worst things you could think of calling, they're punching her in the face, they're kicking her in the ribs, assaulting her, she's getting bloodied up, it's really, really, really bad. And him stops them shoves them away, screams, what are you doing? And mother looks at him and says, you killed him. He says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We can't let him die for nothing. Maybe what happened can change everything. We have to find a way to forgive them. They are truly sorry. Listen to them. This is where mother's like, you're fucking insane. And then this is where her breathing begins to quiet. The heart of the house dies. It blackens up. This is where we get almost Carrie, like a little bit of a Carrie Mm. scene where she screams no, like no to forgiving them. 
your murderers get the fuck out of my house and the floor splits open. Then as she makes her way to the basement, finds the lighter and goes to the basement with him in pursuit of her. Then she uses the lighter. She cuts open, I guess, this container of oil in the basement and then sets everything on fire and it goes up in a blaze. Yeah, there's some dialogue where him is like, don't leave me here. I love you. She says, you never loved me. You just loved how much I loved you. I gave you everything and you gave it all away. And that's when she drops the lighter and the house explodes. And we have a scene identical to the scene that starts the movie, except we have this mother's face in it, whereas the woman's face we saw in the beginning was not Jennifer Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And it's giving us very much, this has happened before vibes. Him holds a very burnt, dying mother. He lays her down on the ground and says he needs one last thing, your love. She says, go ahead, take it. And he uses both hands and digs into her chest and scoops her heart out, squeezes it like we saw him do with those shards of glass from his original broken crystal. And when he opens his hand, he uncovers another crystal. The burnt parts of the heart have fallen away and that pressurized gem remains. We see him take it, gingerly place it on display and jovially laughs as the house restores around him and another woman taking mother's place awakes in her bed and calls baby. Some other dialogue from this scene that's just like pivotal to him's point of view. Mother asks, what are you? And he says, I am I. And you, you were home. So again, Mm -hmm. him isn't even giving mother personhood anymore. It's like, this is what you were in relation to me. Like you were home. He then places her down before he rips her heart out and says, it's not going to hurt for very much longer. And she says, what hurts me the most is that I wasn't enough. Mm. And he says, it's not your fault. Nothing is ever enough. I couldn't create if it was and I have to. It's what I do. That's what I am. And now I must try it all again. So you could tell that, yeah, there is this cycle. She had even asked at one point, where are you taking me? And he says the beginning. So there's this idea of he needs what she can offer, but he does not need her in the way that she needs him to exist. And yeah, the fact that the beginning scene just like replays again, and it's a new woman in her place just proves that he's going to do what it takes until his art doesn't destroy everything is fuck. Okay, so some little bit of trivia. Since we have just been talking about the scene where mother's heart is taken, an article from Vanity Fair titled Mother Ending What Does It All Mean by Julie Miller writes, quote, as unlikely as it sounds, Aronofsky said that the children's book The Giving Tree partly inspired Mother, one of the most haunting movies in recent memory. At the end of the film, Bardem carries Lawrence, burned beyond recognition, out from the ashes of their demolished home. He asks her for one more thing, quote, I gave you everything, Lawrence tells her husband, I have nothing left to give. When Bardem points out that she still has a heart, she gives him permission to take it too. He plunges his hand into her chest cavity and pulls out her last bit of life. Quote, here's a tree that gives up everything for the boy, Aronofsky said of the parallel. That's pretty much the same thing. In a nod to Hindu religion, which states that God created and destroyed the universe infinite times, the cycle begins again. Ashes, crystal, new home, new mother. And thinking about mother, 
exclamation point. I kind of had a thought about like, yes, the exclamation point is explained. What about the lowercase m? And I was kind of thinking if this is mother nature who comes second to God in the Bible, anytime like father is mentioned, it's capitalized. But in this case, mother, it's not given that same authority. It's lowercase. And I thought that it might help illustrate like her positioning in relation to God or her husband in this like fucked up cosmic relationship. Even the idea that it denotes a singular person like it's a proper noun. But mm. the fact that her role has been played by so many oh, yes. different women, <gasps> like it's just a placeholder, like it's a positionality and not a person. Mm. So it's like, it's not Jennifer Lawrence. It's whatever woman figure being is there. Yeah, like incarnation of it. Oh my God. Okay, other trivia. Again, thinking about that oil tank that mother cuts open. IMDb says that this seems to be a nod to what would be him's previous work being like the dinosaurs. Crude oil is, I guess, said to be created from like the compressed, decomposed remains of dead animals. And so this is perhaps when she uncovers that room, she gets a little glimpse into what was life before her, which I thought was pretty fucking crazy. And on the graphic death of the baby, in the end, it led to difficulties finding a distributor for the film. 20th Century Fox turned away the script after having worked with its director for quite a few films. And eventually Paramount Pictures picked it up. And the only reason they did that is because it had a really strong cast. I had said earlier before recording, and I'll kind of touch on this a little bit more. I think Aronofsky likes to be a little bit of an edgelord when it comes to like <laughs> wanting to be a little divisive with what his work is. Because I have heard about people walking out of this film when it was in theaters. It's just so fucked up. Yeah, I don't... This is part we knew we were eventually going to get to and talk about. And we kind of talked about this before we started recording, like, just how another crucial element, I think, to this scene is that it comes after an hour and a half of just pure building discomfort and frustration, not only for Jennifer Lawrence, but for us, the viewer. And like, thinking back to one of the first episodes of this podcast, I remember talking about like, yeah, my beef with horror is that it just makes me so frustrated and it's hard to watch. And like, this is like the ultimate mm -hmm. movie for that. Like I said, very few moments of comedic relief. It is a steady build from the beginning to that very, you know, fiery, climactic moment where mother burns it all down. It left me feeling almost hollow, so upset. It just has a way of keeping you there. And the movie is two fucking hours. Mm -hmm. Like that is so long for any movie. That's like a longer runtime to be in that world for so long. It's just so much. And I'm realizing now that we opened the episode talking about Roe v. Wade and the thing that's upsetting us is this baby scene. To make it abundantly clear, we're both pro-choice, pro-abortion. I mean, this is like a, this is a real baby. This is a real baby. But for it's, me, it's not even like call me monstrous. I don't care about the baby. I care about how it impacts mother. Like <sighs> that's what's most upsetting is because we mm -hmm. we have this entire two-hour buildup of her not having this autonomy over her relationship, of her house, of her being, of this, of that, and now she has held her baby for less than twelve hours. And her partner, who she's supposed to trust, has given it away to his disciples, his followers, and they take advantage again and again and again. And there's nothing left that is hers. Because again, like this baby, I think, of course, it's like a baby, 
but it also represents the only kind of ownership that she even has in this movie and is taken away from her mm-hmm. by people that she does not care for. And again, to me, it's like the whole this idea of like how all of these people have opinions on women's bodies. This level of ownership over her own mortality, her own baby, her own sense of motherhood is taken away before she even really has one. And mm-hmm. it's just, oh, God. And then that scene following where she is attacked by the crowd. There is trivia that this, I guess, is the first movie where Jennifer Lawrence has any kind of nudity. And originally, that scene was filmed where her breasts were not exposed, Mm -hmm. but she watched it back and didn't think it was enough. Mm. She's like, I don't think it's impactful enough. It's not violating enough. It's not showing that violation enough. And so they did it again. Mm -hmm. And she had that, you know, first moment as an actress. And I think that that's really telling. Like, we also see that moment this culminating moment, like, yes, her house has been ravaged and yes, she's been tossed around, but this is where she also loses her bodily autonomy, which is so troubling. Okay, so I have some thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) The relationship between nature, women, and Western religion is sort of the trifecta that I'm seeing here. There are so many other things here, but this is what really captured my attention. And this is my attempt to try to tie some of it together and make some kind of sense of it. So as previously mentioned in episode six of this podcast, Puritan Ladies, there is a historically tumultuous relationship between Judeo-Christian tradition and nature, specifically the wilderness, which can be traced back to the Bible and its rhetoric. As a review of my guy Roderick Nash's book, Wilderness in the American Mind, he states that, quote, the authors of the Bible gave wilderness a central position in their accounts, both as a descriptive aid and as a symbolic concept. The term occurs 245 times in the Old Testament, Revised Standard Version, and 35 times in the New. In addition, there are several hundred uses of the terms such as desert and waste with the same essential significance as wilderness, end quote. In nature, the wilderness is often depicted as the antithesis to paradise, paradise being the parts of nature that, quote, all have in common a bountiful and beneficent natural setting, a mild climate, ripe fruit, no thorns to prick reaching hands, end quote. The most famous example of paradise in Christianity is the Garden of Eden. With this in mind, I find the power dynamic between him, God, and mother, mother nature, to align with Christianity's historically controlling approach to nature. If the movie mirrors the book of Genesis, where God creates the earth and heavens, then God would have created Mother Nature and the house as the Garden of Eden. And we can even see that Eden is like written to be like this gorgeous paradise surrated by endless wilderness. So Mm -hmm. even in that aerial shot, we see that while one would expect Mother Nature to be in control of her domain, God is the one who determines who has the right to come and go, not Mother. He hosts, quote unquote, expecting mother to fetch linen and clean up after meals and death in ways that take advantage of her kindness and bounty. As more and more people arrive, mother nature's domain is increasingly more difficult to maintain and serious damage occurs, including the great flood of the unbraced sink. However, while mother nature doesn't mind the hard work, and that's a quote that she gives early in the film. Her character does not seem to happily submit to God's wishes. Jennifer Lawrence's facial expressions denote emotions like uneasiness as early as her first scene, which builds to frustration as tasks pile on and she wills herself to complete them. She seems to have an unnatural role in her own paradise, 
often acting more as a servant while guests enjoy her hard work. It is clear that Mother wants more of a say over who stays and leaves, and her creativity even seems stifled. Her home is gorgeous, of course, but it's relatively colorless. The scene where she mixes yellow into her beige paint or drywall or whatever and looks longingly at the test stroke on the wall to me suggests that she might be looking for more color. The detail leads me to ask, are her creative choices made for her or for God? As the movie continues, Mother Nature is visibly more strained. The yellow tonic she takes at times seems reminiscent of an anxiety medication for when she might feel especially burdened or disenchanted by her role. Perhaps the untamed wilderness in her identity calls. Eventually, the mass of visitors destroy the house beyond recognition and use, and they kill her Christ-like baby, who seems like the last hope or reason for another nature to rebuild. Without him, she self-destructively burns it all down, which seems undoubtedly a nod to the threat of climate change in this world. It would appear in this film that God has set the precedent of neglect as a self-absorbed creator longing for attention from his followers who mirror his insatiable desire for more. Do you want to talk about that first before I go on to my, my next part of my essay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that definitely was a thought that I had that whether it be climate change or just natural disasters about mm-hmm. how like, yeah, when Mother Nature gets fed the fuck up, it's like where we get ice ages. It's where we get torrential storms. It's not for nothing that these things happen. It's when we mistreat the resources that she's going to bite back in some degree because she can't hold it all together. And the entire movie, I was trying to find what is the yellow tonic. Like, yeah, it's obviously serving as like anxiety medication for mother, but in nature, what is the yellow tonic? Is mm. that like the few people who was like, okay, you harness solar energy yeah. and you let her breathe for a second or, oh, okay, uh-huh. we have like, <laughs> we have fucking electric cars now. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Or is it even like the pandemic where it's like people aren't driving, people aren't mm-hmm. doing all these things. So like in my mind, I was just trying to decipher hmm. what is the healing and what is giving her these moments of reprieve where she can keep going forward. It's the people that believe in her, I think. Like, yeah. that, it's the people that I don't want to go as far as to say it, believe more in her than they believe in God, because I think we're now entering a world where that might be happening, which mm-hmm. is awesome. But does that mean that it can fix the fucking holes in the wall at this point mm-hmm. without having to start anew? I don't know. Right. That's such an interesting point. Okay. This is my next bit here, trying to, again, draw this connection between Mother Nature and women, right? Because we see the depiction of a domestic relationship here. So nature's depiction as a woman and her domestic unhappiness with God also seems appropriate. In the film, nature always comes second in her feminine role, even in her very equal desire to create. Mother nature has shit to do. She wants to paint, brace the sink, etc. But that always comes second to God's desire to create. Mother has to keep putting her goals on hold and clean up after God's messes. And he leans on her in their relationship as many men have historically leaned on women in domestic relationships. The idea of a wife submitting to her husband is also rooted in the Bible. A common verse read in wedding ceremonies today is from, it says the book of Ephesians, I think it's pronounced, quote, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, etc. That's from the Bible, right? This is an idea rooted in at least Christianity, among other things. 
Mother Nature appears to submit herself to God as many wives are expected to do with their husbands. I think Mother Nature's subtle discontentment with her role, maintaining a domestic, quote, paradise for God, seems to double as representation for women who might also feel disenchantment with their roles as homemakers. Mother never even leaves the house in this film. She maintains her allegiance to a being who continues to discredit and ignore her, which eventually builds to the point of literal eruption. God seems as though he cannot understand mother's feelings at any point throughout this film, which also reminds me of the countless diagnoses of, quote, hysteria for women throughout history who have expressed feelings men cannot or do not want to understand. Countless women throughout history have been forced into roles and actions by larger cultural expectations, just like mother nature's landscape has been altered in unnatural ways for the same reason. Yeah, that leads to some thoughts that I had just about men taking their roles Mm. as just so much more important or Mm -hmm. self-important and almost like the woman's role as a muse or inspiration. Mm. Because we do see that language throughout the film. We see mother being reduced to, oh, the inspiration or, oh, the muse or, oh, this, that. And then eventually it like degrades to, oh, the whore, his whore, the this, the that. And it's just like, like the degradation of that. So- My thoughts were not necessarily sitting with the historical context, but the context that surrounded the film and the context that surrounds like muses in Hollywood and directors and shit like that. So I put some thoughts together about that. So seeing mother as an ego horror allegory is something that I can wrap my head around. We as a culture cannot stop taking from Mother Earth despite its protestations and catastrophes that result in us taking it for granted. Even at the end of the movie, him asks Mother for one more thing, and that one thing is enough to give him bounty in new space, despite causing the death and destruction of his followers at home time and time and time again. When thinking of the biblical allegories that are obviously very present in the film, I can't help but feel enraged as we see these themes play out in real-time 2020s. So Darren Aronofsky, who's the director, signed a petition in 2009 in support of Roman Polanski, a powerful director who was charged with raping a 13-year-old girl. As he was about to be sentenced to 50 years for his crimes, he fled to France, where he remains and continues to make movies due to the French government not extraditing him back to the United States where the charges were filed. In September 2009, Polanski was arrested in Switzerland while attempting to attend a film festival to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award, and a petition was created for his release. While unsurprisingly, other powerful directors signed in their support of Polanski, Martin Scorsese, David Lynch, Wes Anderson... Powerful women in the industry also signed in support of him. Tilda Swinton, Penelope Cruz, Natalie Portman, who later expressed regret for doing this, but also Meryl Streep and Whoopi Goldberg spoke out in support of Polanski, although they did not sign the petition. Aronofsky's support of Polanski, even emulating Mother's cover art after Rosemary's Baby, in a way helps us read his viewpoint in crafting the power dynamics depicted in Hmm. Mother. Woman, the character on multiple occasions, comments on Mother's youth, suggesting that is both the reason him uses her as his muse and why they don't look like they belong together. Him consistently makes decisions on behalf of him and Mother, and Mother's protests go largely unheard until she is quote-unquote hysterical. While this dynamic is in line with the dated representations expressed through a biblical lens, the dynamic could also be true to life. Aronofsky and Lawrence began dating after meeting on the set of Mother, Lawrence at the time being 27 and Aronofsky at the time being 48, making her his muse in creating the film just as Mother served as him's inspiration for his work for the masses. While this suggests that women in these relationships have a level of influence over the men, it also reduces the woman's love into what they are providing to Mm. the art of their man. 
Aronofsky has a reputation for being an intense director, reportedly filming Jennifer Lawrence as she was having a breakdown after tearing her diaphragm <gasps> from hyperventilating on set, only to order her to do another shot immediately right after. Are you serious? Yeah. The couple reportedly broke up due to Aronofsky's inability to separate their relationship to his infatuation with the movie. That's more gossip, but I also believe it. Oh, my God. All this to say, despite both the dated and current lores that inspired the film, the film to me is about loneliness. Despite being in a romantic partnership with him, Mother is abandoned when new admiration arrives. Despite being in a house full of people, she is only engaged in community when she is acting as him's quote-unquote goddess or inspiration or the object of sexual attention. In the destruction of the house, where groups of people are worshiping and causing destruction room to room, she floats along by herself. She consistently exerts feeling like she is not enough to sustain him's attention, hiding her pain in the floorboards of the nursery until she can no longer forgive him after the murder of their son. Woman acts as a cruel foil, and the other women in the movie only serve to isolate her further. Even as she gives new life to the house once more, a new woman has taken her place. It's very emblematic of the time. A woman can give her entire self, her entire body, her entire freedom, and there will still be a man asking for one more thing. I have nothing to add to that because I agree with everything you said. <laughs> I really do. And I, I really like your take as well about loneliness. I think that it's another element to add to this film that makes it so dense and heartbreaking and thought provoking. And I love that point. The last thing that you have is like the most fun theory yes. for me. So I'm glad that we're ending on it. This is an anti-theory that I stumbled upon from Reddit Somebody by the name of Puny Human, which I also really like. <laughs> me, it's not me. <laughs> okay, yeah. So an anti-theory about what's going on. So Shay and I both focused on, you know, our thoughts, what stood out to us. This is somebody who found, yet again, something different in the film. So this is taken directly from a Tiny Human's post on Reddit. Puny Human. What did I say? Tiny <laughs> <laughs> From a Puny Human. Okay. Quote, Aronofsky has said this is a straight biblical allegory. Quote, I would say every single beat and character is related to the Bible in order all the way throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. End quote. Mother Nature doesn't appear in the Bible. So who exactly is Jennifer Lawrence playing? Obviously, there are direct parallels to Mary, but throughout most of the movie, she is an angel. And specifically, her analog is mainly Lucifer. Hell yeah! <laughs> what? Okay. For instance, angels were created before man. If Ed Harris is Adam and J-Law is there before him, then she's not a human allegory in this. Like every angel, she is a servant. She cooks, she cleans, she tends house while God creates. And the father's most trusted one, in this case by dint of being the only one. The basement, the underworld, is her domain and ends up being the source point for the fire. Oh, and who besides J-Law and Javier Bardem go down into the basement? Why, it's Michelle Pfeiffer, Eve, left alone to talk with Lucifer while God and Adam are off on a walk. That's another bit of the story that's mentioned in, I think, Genesis or the Old Testament. She grows increasingly jealous of Javier Bardem's time with the humans and keeps asking him to send them away. J-Law gives direction, but nobody listens. In fact, they often do the opposite. Quote, leave this house. Don't fight. Don't lean on the sink. Leave me alone. Interaction with the sleazy guy. Give me my baby, etc. It's as if she brings out the worst in people, maybe tempting them to disobey. 
In fact, she is a force of destruction either explicitly in the end, accidentally the teacup she drops, or indirectly, leaving the doorknob out that Donald Gleason, aka Kane, later uses to kill his brother, and can't seem to escape the cycle. And at the end of the movie, how does the fire start, by the way? Because she rejects him. She rejects his world and decides to bring it all down, making good on her earlier promise to, quote, take care of the apocalypse. Lastly, it speaks to the duality of Christianity. Lucifer doesn't hate God. He loves God selfishly. Lucifer doesn't see the people as deserving of God's love. And I'm not sure the movie makes a good case that they are deserving of that love either. They need each other. God is so busy creating, he's absent from the day to day. Lucifer is the actor, the instigator. When Harrison Pfeiffer break the crystal, Lawrence casts them out while Bardem mourns. That is the heart of the conflict for both Lawrence Bardem and Lucifer God. Jennifer Lawrence and Lucifer exist to support and serve, but it isn't enough for God and it never will be. Lucifer must rebel and God must create. There is never any progress, only process, until the end comes and then the work begins again. And this is a note added from a later comment by the writer, quote, I don't think Lawrence as Lucifer makes her any less sympathetic. I think there is a strong push for people to read Lucifer as capital E evil. But as a creation of God, Lucifer is just as much a part of his plan as humans are. I think that's an important part of it. And yes, people in the movie treat her horribly as if she's an adversary, as most people here in the real world would see Satan. But that's the point. Our perspective, the one we've been given as an audience member, is Lucifer's perspective. I fucking hope she's the devil, dude. Dude, that would be so fucking cool. Because of Eve eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, a lot of people use that as proof that women are more susceptible to moral corruption, right? Because of Eve. And the idea that Lucifer is a woman, or like we're seeing Lucifer depicted as a woman, which is not common. I don't think I've ever seen Lucifer depicted as a woman, only as a man Mm -hmm. or something resembling a man. The idea that, you know, we're seeing like a multifaceted view of this role Lucifer played, I think is a really, really cool alternate theory to consider. Also, the idea that Lucifer is sympathetic and God's the fucking problem. Yes. Which I think I'm going to say he is a problem. (laughs) Especially right now. He's a fucking problem. He's got to get his act together. Yeah, it's like... You see what happens when you get a group of God-loving people? They take away women's rights to their bodies. But you see Lucifer-loving people, and they're all for people's rights. So, like, you just fucking tell me. I don't fucking know. That is true. I've seen a lot of posts these days about Satanism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things kind of coming to the surface about Satan's kind of misunderstood story and elements of that sort of belief system that align kind of with a lot of people's day-to-day ideas that they don't think would align with this biblical figure, right? Because they don't even worship Lucifer. It's a form of self-worship. It's an atheistic religion where you worship yourself, you take accountability for yourself, you Mm -hmm. treat people how you want to be treated. I feel like Lucifer's kind of almost being reclaimed as this like progressive icon, kind of like the Babadook was claimed as like an LGBT icon. I do love that. I think, again, really interesting perspective. We are at the end of all of the things that we have prepared to say. We've done all we can do. I will say I don't think I have ever spent so long trying to get my shit together for a podcast. We did our best. 
You know, if you have any comments or theories or pieces that we missed, absolutely feel free to reach out and let us know. We love hearing about things we missed or other theories or perspectives. We also have bones to pick with whoever voted for mother and yeah, didn't fucking you, warn us. And look, I have all of your names. Because <laughs> <laughs> Instagram saves that shit. I have all your names. And you know, I've already thought about it a little bit. <laughs> I personally, who, if you listen, you know that I am weak. I am weak. <laughs> and I feel, I feel like I was a little bit set up like a bad middle school prank. <laughs> But it ended up being, even though one of the toughest movies I've seen, I think one of my favorite movies that we've discussed for this podcast because of all of the questions that I feel I have, even after doing a lot of thinking. I I have so many questions and the thinking, the timeliness of it. Researching this, thinking about this movie has been therapeutic for me. And I, in the coming days, as I have to wean off of having this to think about all the time and kind of face more of the reality of the situation and instead of like going on this Google Doc and hiding behind like <laughs> biblical stories and like anti-theories about the devil. Like, you know, it's, I'm going to miss having this to think about having this recording done. I, for one, am excited to pivot away from the religious <laughs> bullshit. And we don't know what we're doing next. I don't know if we're going to do another. I don't know if we're going to do another poll, though. Not for a little bit. No, we don't trust you anymore. Um, We're probably going to go for something with a lot more levity. (laughs) Not going back to the Fridays of the world, but something that, I don't know, I feel like we need another, like, Jennifer's body, or we need, like, (laughs) something that we can just laugh at. So we don't know what that's going to be. Maybe we'll put up another poll that doesn't hurt us as much. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll make sure all of the options are things that are good for us. (laughs) That are good for us, personally. (laughs) But yeah, if you have thoughts, if you have suggestions, definitely email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And or follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And again, Instagram is where we post polls. We've mentioned updates, things like that. That's definitely where you want to be if you want to know about what we're doing, especially because, you know, our release schedule, it's, it's not the most consistent thing. So it's, it doesn't hurt to be on there and know it's coming from us. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.